afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Ringhands from the Center for Continuing Education. I'd like to thank you for joining us for our February session of Nursing Korea Now, entitled Communicating with Friends, Family, and Others Involved in Patient Care. I would also like to welcome anyone who's viewing this session live online. A few housekeeping details. Please be sure to sign in in the back of the room. You must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. And uh, this educational activity carries 1.5 contact hours. For those viewing online, please email me um, within an hour after the presentation with your name, degree, zip code, and, um, and just letting me know that you viewed this presentation. And also, if you have any questions during the presentation, feel free to email me. Now, we leave them to the speaker. Email is judith.m.langhands, L A N G A N S, at ucox.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online evaluation shortly after the program. The Center for Continuing Education appreciates your feedback and hopes you take a moment to complete the evaluation. Your contact hours will be posted to your online transcript within two weeks. There are instructions in the back of the room on how to access your online transcript. And finally, please silence your cell phone and pagers. Our speaker today is Aaron Curley, manager of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Privacy Program for Health Information Services. Aaron received her law degree from the Vermont School of Law School and has been at Dartmouth-Hitchcock since March 2014 where her job responsibilities have been around ensuring organizational compliance with state and federal privacy laws and regulations and developing a more mature privacy program that fully operates on many fronts, including policies and procedures, communications, training, auditing, and monitoring, and investigations. We are delighted to have Erin with us today. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Thank you very much, and welcome here. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me for lunch today. Um, so as Judy said, my name is Erin Curley. I'm the manager of the privacy program here at Dartmouth. And um, just the privacy program is basically a compliance program that's in place to ensure that we are following all the rules and regulations that go with HIPAA and our New Hampshire state privacy laws. So today we're going to focus on a specific area of HIPAA known as the friends and families provision, um, which is a little bit different than some types of HIPAA uh, regulations because it's kind of a gray area. It's not always very clear um, what is the right thing to do in which scenario, and each scenario varies. Um, it's never going to be the same. You always kind of have to walk yourself through um, some questions to ask. So it's kind of a, a difficult space to be in um, when there's not a right line rule, yes or no. And so hopefully we'll go through some scenarios and we'll all feel a little bit more comfortable about communicating with friends and families who are involved with patients' care. The interesting thing about this provision is it really is one of those places in HIPAA where the federal government says, we do want you to communicate um, <coughs> aspects of the patient's health information. 
um, most of us kind of think of HIPAA as the do not rule, and this is one of those areas where they recognize that patients need people to be involved in their care in order to receive good care. When we send them home, you know, we need to make sure that there are caregivers there who are appropriately treating them, and it's going to involve giving them a certain amount of information for that to happen. So this is kind of a, a cool area of HIPAA because it's not so much the do not, it's more the, yeah, you can do this with a couple of, you know, parameters around it. So we'll hop in. Um, these are the learning objectives for the CME credits. Um, so we're going to identify scenarios where we're allowed to share health information with family members, friends, and even this, others identified by the patient as being involved in the care. So not just necessarily because of family. Um, we're going to discuss some misunderstandings of HIPAA that might impede patient care, engagement with caregivers, or payment for care. And then we'll describe some best practices for communicating with the patient's family members and friends. So the first thing we're going to talk about is an overview of our privacy program and the HIPAA regulations. So this is uh, kind of the, our core privacy program. We have oversight, which is accomplished by our privacy officer, Marty Purcell, who's the vice president of information, information systems. The privacy office consists of Pat Sorrento, who's my supervisor. She's the director of HIS, myself, the manager, and then Michelle Kern is my colleague. She um, really helps support me in the investigation area. You can email us at privacyoffice at hitchcock.org or give us a call at 58483. We also have privacy liaisons around the system and National Manchester Confident Team who help facilitate the compliance around uh, the region. Another main aspect of our program are our policies and procedures, which we just updated into all the policy tech. Um, and they, starting today, we're publishing a new intranet site that's going to be specific for HIPAA privacy. Hopefully, it'll be more user-friendly and will lay out all the policies and procedures we have on HIPAA, along with some other um, helpful information. Lines of communication, training and awareness like this presentation today, auditing and monitoring, um, that mostly revolves around auditing and monitoring the electronic medical record and making sure that people are staying in the places where they need to be. And then um, enforcing standards and detecting and responding to ground compliance, and that's where our investigations come into play. Um, just to give you kind of a, an example, we had almost 400 privacy investigations last year around the system, so it keeps us very busy. So a quick history of healthcare privacy and security regulation. So first was HIPAA. 1996 it was passed. It was the first set of federal standards for health information. Um, if you've but in one of my talks, um, you'll recognize this, but what was always interesting to me is that HIPAA, when we think of HIPAA, we think privacy, but it was really intended to standardize electronic transitions of health information, a standard set of, um, of codes. And what that meant was it was going to be an increase in electronic transmissions of health information. So when you start talking about health information being transmitted electronically, it gets people nervous. and. That's why we have privacy in HIPAA, because to balance out that increase in um, transmission, they wanted to make sure we had adequate privacy protections. Then in 2009, HIPAA gets some teeth through the High Tech Act. And this is kind of interesting, too, because High Tech was part of President Obama's stimulus package, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. High Tech was a provision in it that was intended to incentivize us to start using electronic medical records. So we get 
millions of dollars to buy an electronic medical record, implement it here at our hospital, show that we're using it in a meaningful way, but again, with an increase of electronic transactions and transmissions of health information, people get nervous. So we balance it out with more privacy protection. So this is like HIPAA on steroids. Um, it introduces three um, things that are notable. Uh, one is increased monetary penalties for noncompliance with the, with the rules. The second is a governing, government auditing requirement. So in the past, the government would come in and investigate you if a patient complained and the complaint seemed like it was justifiable. So it was a reactive kind of situation. High tech actually mandates that the federal government, <coughs> through the Office of Civil Rights or the OCR, must come into healthcare facilities every year and audit their privacy and security program. So that's a little bit scary and different. Um, last, in 2013, they had about 100. And 14 audits that they did on healthcare or covered entities, I should say. It's not just healthcare providers; it's also insurance plans. Um, and then the third is this breach notification to the patient at NHHS. So in the past, we always had to adhere to HIPAA, but if we violated HIPAA, we didn't have to tell anybody about it. We just had to make sure we took our own internal corrections, right? We had to sanction employees, we trained, all of that, but nobody ever knew. So this breach notification was, is a whole new world. Now we're telling the patient, hey, we messed up, and we're telling the government, hey, come look at us. We have all these breaches. So um, these, these are significant increases in terms of enforcement of HIPAA. Um, breach notification, we're in it right now. We have to file our whole calendar year's breaches by the following year's um, by the 28th day of um, February, basically, by February 20th. So today's our last day of filing. We had 139 breaches last year um, across the system. So we've been diligently notifying the government about those. Um, we have to notify the patient right when it happens, well, within 60 days, but then we have um, a full year to notify the government. It's on a calendar year. So then the final part about regulation is that HIPAA gains an incentive, and that's this meaningful use. But part of meaningful use is that we have to um, say that we have conducted a security risk analysis, particularly on our EMR, um, to make sure that it meets certain security rule um, requirements. So if we do that, we're incentivized because then we get some money. Um, that was, I think, the first two phases. I think. Coming up, we'll start getting penalized if we don't do it. So it had an incentive, and now it's going to go to a penalization and a penalization. So why do they have these requirements? Why do they do this? Well, first is we're hearing a lot about it right now with Anthem Blue Shield. If you guys get a, a notification, some of us are going to be affected by this. Um, you'll get a, a notification in the mail, and that is a breach notification that we just talked. That is a requirement that the federal government makes these companies do. In the past, that wouldn't have had to happen. They might have done it, but it wasn't required. Now it's a requirement. Um, so the medical information that they sell on the black market is lucrative. And the second is that medical information is sensitive, personal, and it encourages patients to be forthright with their health care providers. They know that we're you know, keeping our lips closed. They're more willing to share information. And I think being in a rural community like we are, in a small community like we are, it's, it's more, it's even more important that we pull ourselves out as being 
um, you know, really confidential because you know, we're, as employees here, many of us are patients here, so that's important to us. And also we have a small community where you might run into your patient you know, later on. And people want to feel like that information is, is really going to be kept private. So what I mean by lucrative, well, they just published this month the fifth annual study on medical identity theft. So different than identity theft because they're really talking about medical information that is stolen. In this report, it said that 65% of medical identity theft victims in this study had to pay an average of $13,500 to resolve the crime. Uh, in the past year, we, um, the victims increased nearly 22% to half a million. And the cost of consumers for medical identity theft in just 2014 alone was identified as $20 billion. So it's a, it's a big deal. Okay, so we'll just run briefly over what are we supposed to be protecting. <coughs> Protected health information, PHI. It's health, it's health information with certain patient identifiers, like name, address, dates, so admin date and discharge date. Those are patient identifiers according to the government. So if you're saying someone came in on March 1st with a you know, severe heart attack, if you can identify the individual or if there's a reasonable basis to believe that the information can be used to identify the individual, just an admin date and a condition could be PHI and you just disclosed it potentially in an unauthorized way. Let's say you go home and you're sharing a story with your spouse, for example. So it doesn't take a lot to create PHI and that's why it's, it's very tricky. Um, when you're sharing information about a patient, um, to make sure that you're not actually disclosing information that you shouldn't be. Well, how can we use and share PHI? What are we permitted to do? <laughs> These are the main categories that the rule talks about. With written authorization from a patient, as required or permitted by law, so sometimes we're required to share PHI. Um, in certain court proceedings, for example, or if we have a duty to warn statute here in New Hampshire, um, and various other scenarios I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, reporting to re certain registries, etc. We can use and share PHI to carry out treatment, payment, or healthcare operations. In some cases, if we give the patient an opportunity to agree or object, we can share their PHI or use it. And those cases are listed right there. Hospital directory, family, relative, close personal friends, others involved in the patient's care, to notify people that are um, involved with the patient's care, disaster relief purposes, and deceased individuals, if they haven't um, expressed that they don't want you to. And then research activities, and as always, as we take our notice of privacy practices, we can only use or disclose information as we set forth in our NPP. So today we're going to concentrate on this aspect of the privacy rule. Um, if we give the patient an opportunity to agree or object, mostly as it relates to family and friends. The need to know a minimum necessary requirements, so those are the ways we can use or disclose it, but only access PHI if it's needed for your job, and then if it is needed for your job, only access the minimum necessary to get the job done. The one caveat to that is the treatment exception. Minimum necessary does not apply to disclosures to or requests by a healthcare provider for treatment. We want to make sure that treating providers get all the information they need um, to properly care for the patient. So I think that's an important exception to keep in mind. 
So what are these things, these breaches that we're talking about? Well, it's an unauthorized access, uh, use or disclosure of PHI in a manner not permitted by the HIPAA privacy rule. So that first part, that's a violation of HIPAA. That's something we've always had. But the second part is the analysis that now we have to do. That compromises the security or privacy of the PHI. So every week, every week on Monday, we have a, a group that meets called the Privacy Case Review Committee. And it's made up of individuals from risk management, HR, um, Office of General Counsel, and privacy. We look at all the privacy cases uh, for the week, and we go through the analysis of saying, one, was this a violation of privacy? And then two, did it compromise the privacy or security of the PHI? And if we come to the determination that yes, it did, that kind of becomes a breach at that point. So some examples, um, snooping, looking in the record when we shouldn't be. Um, of course, that is the probably most egregious one. Um, that's the one that people usually are immediately terminated for. Um, that's the one that usually you see federal prosecutions coming out of those um, and, and civil fines. So that's the egregious one. Looking in records where you shouldn't be looking. Um, gossiping, posting something on a social networking site like Facebook. We've had a few cases, breaches this year with Facebook, and it's rarely, it's not anything malicious ever. It's usually people wanting to share like a success story about their patient. You know, I had a great patient today, this, that, and the other thing, but it just so happens that, you know, we saw how little it takes to create PHI. Um, and again, we're in the small community, so they ended up being breaches. And so we just say, you know, keep patient information out of just don't post about patients on, on Facebook because it's really hard to de-identify the information. Um, and then there's emailing, faxing, mailing to the wrong patient. You know, you, you send an after visit somewhere to your house and um, probably heard us talk about that. And then losing anything like a laptop or a jump drive or other device that could turn into a breach, but if we lose these, these are encrypted. So we're in good shape. That's why we really encourage you to use your personal device if you're um, accessing our PHI. If, if you need to use a jump drive, um, a USB drive, then you should use one of the encrypted ones without an um, method records. You can go and get one for free. So this, this past year, actually physically handing a document that had PHI to the wrong patient was our number one um, greatest breach. So. This, I think, is something that we can improve as an organization. There are always going to be mistakes, that is for sure. We do not expect anyone to be, you know, 100%. But it's, we, we have a lot of paper. It's part of that meaningful use stuff. We're printing out ABSs after every visit, discharge only after every discharge. So that's a lot of paper. So we just have to make sure when we're handing over, we have the correct number of pages. We don't have somebody else's stuff stuck at the bottom, and that we're just verifying the patient's identity before we hand it over. That's that's really, you know, it takes a couple extra seconds, and, and we get that. But I do think this is something we can reduce for next year. And then a close set, second was misdirected mail. So the same concept, just put it, sending the PHI to the wrong person. Um, sometimes it's a double stack where you put two patients' information into one mail application, or sometimes it's just a switch. So it happens, it's a mistake, and we totally get it. It's just being aware that these things do result in us reporting to the federal government and the patient. A little bit of patient trust arose. The government gets another reason to take a look at Dartmouth Hitchcock, and we don't want them to. Um, 
a quick anecdote that I tell about the ABS is sometimes you know we think, oh yeah, you know nobody wants patient information to go into the wrong hands. But um, there's this one particular case that always stands out in my mind, and it was a gentleman who was at our pain clinic and <coughs> came here for a visit. His after-visit summary was mailed to the wrong patient, and so you know, oh, you know, we have a lot of these. Like, oh, it's another ABS, and we sent out the letter, and we, you know, we told him what happened. And he called me up and he said, you know, I feel really, really vulnerable right now because I have this list of, you know, narcotic drugs on my ABS that also has my address on it that was sent to the wrong person. And we all know that that really does exist, where drug seekers will go to people's houses, break in to get their narcotic drugs. And he said, you know, if this had just ended up in the wrong hands, it could have been a really scary situation for me. Um, luckily, it didn't. It, it ended up in somebody's hands where they told us that they had gotten it, and they sent it back to us. But, you know, he just felt so vulnerable, and there was nothing we could do at that point to mitigate it. You know, it was, it was done. It was out of our hands. So, it's, you know, God forbid anything like that ever, ever happened. Um, you know, we have, we have to just make sure that we're paying close attention to that stuff. So there are, of course, consequences of non-compliance. The first are employee sanctions. Um, so these are our own sanctions that we give out here. Our, our HR group will, will um, work with managers to do this. And we classify violations in three levels. The first is just unintentional, careless. It's a mistake. And it's going to happen. Handing a patient the wrong ABS, mailing facts in our email, and uh, PHI the wrong recipient. Level two means it was intentional, so it wasn't a mistake, but it wasn't with malice or personal gain. So you were just taking care of a, a you know, two-year-old who was in a really traumatic accident, and they just left to go to um, a, a different floor, you know, maybe to pick you or whatever, and you just want to know. That patient's still okay. What's going on with that patient? I just, you know, you're looking at concern. You're looking at curiosity. That would be considered a level two violation. A level three is when it's intentional and it's with malice or personal gain. And we had three level three violations last year. Um, an example of this is looking in the record of a boyfriend's ex-wife to use information in the boyfriend's custody dispute. So this particular employee wanted to feed some information to her boyfriend to get a leg up on, on custody. And, and obviously, that's the type of stuff that makes headlines. So there are also civil monetary penalties that can um, Dr. Hitchcock would have to deal with. There's four tiers. Did not know, had uh, reasonable cause to know, so did not know but had reasonable cause to know. Willful neglect, but we corrected it. Willful neglect, and it was not corrected before the OCR found out about it. So the penalties range from $100 per violation in the did not know category up to $1.5 million um, for that, that particular provision in the calendar year. So the largest type of settlement to date was a $4.8 million settlement um, with New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University. So an integrated academic medical center just like us who had um, a, a breach and they ended up with $4.8 million and you know, with slim operating margins here, that's a scary proposition for sure. And then there are criminal consequences of non-compliance. Um, HIPAA provides criminal penalties of up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars and/or ten years in prison. 
And this is a really interesting case because, like I said, most of the time, federal prosecutions are coming out of people who are doing things maliciously. They're getting information to sell it on the black market. They're getting it to use in some nefarious way. This is the first time someone was sentenced to prison for just peeking in the records. Didn't use it for anything, didn't disclose it to anybody else. This was a researcher at UCLA who was discharged, and the night, the night he was discharged, he went in and just started looking at records. He looked at Leonardo DiCaprio's records, all these famous people, um, and he ended up getting four months in prison for it, so just for snooping. And on that cheery note, <laughs> we're going to switch gears here and get into the meat and potatoes. So that's kind of the background. That's kind of get, hopefully gives you a little bit of overview of HIPAA. Um, but we'll talk specifically now about communicating with family, friends, and others involved in the patient's care. So remember, this falls under the provision for uses and disclosures of PHI where we need to give the patient the opportunity to agree or object. The law does not require us to document the agreement or disagreement, but I think we'll talk later about best practices and how we can accomplish that here at Dartmouth Hitchcock. We have a policy on this in the policy tech and on the HIPAA website, um, if you ever want to take a look, that specifically deals with this particular topic. And I thought that this was kind of interesting. This is a video that the OCR put together um, for consumers, so for patients, saying this is um, how doctors can communicate with their friends and family. So I thought this was kind of a good perspective for us to, to watch. It's a really quick little video. Communicating with family, friends, and others involved in your health care. You have the right to keep your health information private, but there may be times when you'd like to share it with others. Under HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, you have rights over your medical records, whether that information is stored on paper or electronically. And you can always ask your provider not to share your information with your family and friends. But if you don't object, your healthcare provider can share your information with those involved in your care. For example, a surgeon who has just operated on you can tell your family about your condition. And you can send a friend to pick up prescriptions, medical supplies, and x-rays for you. If you're not able to object, your provider can discuss your situation with family or friends involved in your care, if that's in your best interest. So you can balance getting the care you need and the privacy you're entitled to. Know your rights. To find out more about how your health information can be shared, visit the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights at hhs.gov OCR. So the reason I like, to sh I like to show that, and I thought it was really interesting, is I think it's like a very relaxed tone. You know, and I really do think that the government feels that way about this provision. In terms of, I think sometimes we get really, sometimes I hear a lot of straining people's voices about who is the right person I can talk to, I just don't know what to do, what about this scenario, what about that scenario. I think this is one of those areas that the government's pretty relaxed about. They understand that it's a gray area. They want us to do our best, and we'll talk about using professional judgment and the best interests of the patients. They want us to use our best judgment in, in making these decisions, but I think they, they get it that, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing, and it's going to happen sometime. We're going we're gonna to talk to your friends and family. Um, so I like that because it's, it's kind of a relaxed tone. 
The government also put out a guidance document for providers on communicating with patients, family, friends, or others involved in their care. And it will go through some scenarios. That, it has some scenarios in it that we're going to go through today. So the basic rule is that the privacy rule specifically permits covered entities to share information that is directly relevant to the involvement of a spouse, family member, friend, or other person identified by a patient. And of course, that's a key um, key phrase, directly relevant to the involvement. And though, although written authorization is not needed from the patient, the patient has to be given the opportunity to agree, prohibit, or restrict such disclosures. So there's two scenarios, when the patient is present um, and coherent, and then when the patient is not present or is incapacitated. So we'll do present first. If the patient's present, we have to obtain the patient's agreement or provide the patient with the opportunity to object or make a reasonable inference from the circumstances that the patient doesn't object. So, you know, this is kind of the easy scenario when the patient's present, but the, you know, the first one means you just ask, you know, can I talk about your treatment options with your family in the room? The second is, I'm going to talk about your treatment operations with, I'm going to talk about your treatment options now and the family's in the room. If they don't object, you're good to go. The third is that the person has specifically asked the individual to come into the room with them, you can infer that this they want their this individual to be involved in their health care um, in their decision making. So those are kind of the, the three situations for when the patient is present. If the patient objects, however, we obviously cannot disclose to family or friends. And this means not just in that particular time period, that means future um, interactions with those people as well. So if you're in a room and you know you ask this is okay if I share information with your mom, she's right outside, my old my mom involved. So you go through the treatment plan or whatever the information is, and then you're in the hallway and you're walking by the mom, and mom says, Can you hey, can you what's going on? Is everything okay? Can you give me an update? You can't disclose information at that point to the mom. You've already gotten that objection from the um, this is the tricky part, right? So if the patient is not present, so this is when we get phone calls from family or friends, um, or if the patient's incapacitated, is in surgery, whatever it might be. This is what the rule says. You have to exercise professional judgment in determining whether the disclosure is in the best interest of the patient. And if it is in the best interest of the patient, you disclose only the PHI that's directly relevant to the person's involvement with the individual's care or payment of care. So you should use professional judgment, is this in their best interest, and then only share the minimum necessary, right? Kind of familiar concepts. So you're going to make sure that if, let's say it was a billing department um, where somebody calls up and wants to pay a bill um, for their spouse, they could, we could share information that was relevant to that episode of care worked out, but we want to be going back and talking about other episodes of care that weren't related to that bill. That's kind of what that means. Or other diagnoses that were related. And I don't think, you know, that's kind of common sense. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. So here's a scenario. A grandmother of a six-year-old named Susie calls the pediatric clinic. She said she's bringing Susie to her appointment today, but she can't remember what time it is. Can we tell her? Have to say we can tell her. What do you guys think? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. We can actually assume the government says this. 
in their guidance. We can assume that parents asking grandma to bring Susie to her visit effectively verifies that grandma is involved in the patient's care. Right? She knows when the, she knows there's an appointment today. She says her name is grandma. We can effectively assume that the parents want grandma to be involved in the care and we can provide her with the time. Can we give grandma a copy of Susie's after-visit summary at the end of the appointment? Are some, are, is everyone familiar with ABSs or no? Yeah, most of okay. Because they're comprehensive, right? That's the key here. They're comprehensive. It's not just about that visit always. So the answer to this is, although we can infer that grandma's involved in Susie's care for that visit, we can't assume that she is privy to past information or that parents want her to have past information. Therefore, if the ABS has medical history or medications that were not prescribed at that visit, it's best to send the ABS in the mail to the parents instead of giving them to grandma. Right? Make sense? How about Jerry? So Jerry's involved in a car accident and is taken by ambulance to the DHMC. He's admitted to the ICU. The hospital notifies, proactively notifies Jerry's adult daughter that her father was in a car accident and that he's in the hospital's intensive care unit and they even tell him their status. I'll add one extra thing. I say he's doing fair. Is this okay? <clears throat> it actually is. It is allowed. Yes, a healthcare organization can use its professional judgment to determine that it's in the patient's best interest to notify a relative or friend that the patient's there at the facility. So it's okay for Dartmouth to call Jerry's daughter, let her know that he was in the ICU and, you know, poor, fair, or you know, doing well um, would be okay. So I think sometimes it's like, well, we are allowed to do maybe more than we, than we think we can do when it comes to family and friends. Sorry. So some common misunderstandings that I hear sometimes, um, I get phone calls and questions. The first is that I need to get proof of a caller's identity before I can release information over the phone. Well, how do I know that that's who they are saying they are? It could be a crazy stalker who wants to come and meet them at the, you know, the clinic. And if I tell them the appointment time, and you know, scenarios start happening. And I'm not saying that, that that's not a legitimate concern, but we don't need to get proof. HIPAA specifically says this in their. The OCR specifically says this, you don't need to get proof of identity in order to disclose information about a patient. As long as they are, they state that they're a family member, they're involved in the patient's care, we, they don't require proof of identity. Those other requirements apply, but proof of identity not required. However, we have protocols for establishing or verifying individuals before we disclose PHI. So there is a step for verifying, but that is not proof. That's just doing due diligence to make sure the person is going to say they are and are, are involved in the patient's care as they say they are. We're going to go through verification in a couple minutes. The second common misunderstanding that I hear is that I need to get written permission from patient before I can share PHI with friends and families involved in the patient's care. And we've already talked about this. You do, it, HIPAA does not require written permission in this regard. Verbal agreement or discussion is, is sufficient. And if the patient's incapacitated and can't give agreement or disagreement, that's when you use your professional judgment to decide whether disclosure is in their best interest. Third common misunderstanding is that an individual can't call DH and schedule an appointment for her spouse. 
So this happens sometimes where I'll get calls, people saying, I'm trying to call and make an appointment for my spouse, but they're telling me that they can't. They, the office is telling me, no, HIPAA doesn't allow us to do that. So I'm not, I'm not saying in some scenarios there, there might be a reason why we wouldn't do this. But there might be more than just some. There might be many. But HIPAA does not specifically prohibit us from doing this. There might be other factors that are involved that would stop us from doing it. But if an individual calls to schedule an appointment for their spouse or calls to pay a bill for the care the spouse received, we can interact with the spouse in such a way that we can schedule the appointment and get the bill paid. Are they involved in the care? Well, yeah, they have the bill. Obviously, they're involved in the payment for care. So we can talk to them and get, get the payment from them. That would be nice. Um, and can we schedule an appointment? Well, what information are we disclosing in that scenario if we're going to want to schedule an appointment? Probably not very much. Probably maybe even nothing at all. Maybe in some situations there's more, we're asking questions about the patient. Like if you're scheduling an MRI maybe, there's certain information you need to get about the patient. Um, but we're asking questions about the patient. We're not disclosing information about the patient. So it's good to think about it like that too. We can get information and we can plug it into our computers and schedule appointments and send it over, put an appointment reminder to the patient. Um, but if we're not disclosing PHI, then we should feel comfortable doing that. This is a, a common misunderstanding. PH can't leave phone messages with family members at the patient's home <coughs> to remind them of appointments or to inform them that a prescription is ready. This is, again, directly out of the government's guidance. They say, yes, you can do that. And it's the same rules that apply. If the, if the family member is involved in the patient's care, even for you can leave a message with them. You're going to uh, figure out, if, is it in the best interest of the patient, because the patient's not there, it's one of those not present scenarios, um, limit the information disclosed. So if you have a patient whose surgery is coming up, is scheduled, and something happens where the, the, um, the surgeon can't make the appointment, and you call home and you say, you know, is so-and-so there, and they say, no, they're not. Is it okay at that point to say, well, I, you know, I, I want to let you know that it, their, their appointment has been canceled today? Yes, it would be appropriate. It's particularly, if you're calling the patient's home, there's somebody there. Um, if a quick look in, in the EMR, you might even give you even more, um, you know, confidence to leave information with that person that it says it's the spouse, for example. So. This is right from the government. It says you may leave phone messages with family members at, at their home who answers the phone when the patient is not there. So I think that's a really interesting one too. So the last section, um, you know, I want to just say something here too. Although it says we can, again, we, there's going to be many, many scenarios where we wouldn't, right? But that doesn't mean we, that doesn't mean there, again, there's no bright line. It doesn't mean it's always a yes or it's always a no. Um, there might be times when it's appropriate to do that, leave information with them, and, you know, it's in the best interest of the patient. You don't want them coming out here um, if they don't have to, or let's say they're scheduled for some procedure where they have to do certain things before the procedure, and if you don't tell them that, <laughs> They're going to show up at the procedure the next day and can't get it done because they didn't, you know, fast or whatever it might be. That's where it's very important for the patient to get that information. 
So if they're out at the grocery store, you leave the message with, you know, husband. And, um, if all other uh, situations make you feel good about doing that, there's nothing else kind of red, you know, flashing red saying don't leave information with this person kind of scenario. So it's a lot of professional judgment calls and it's not always easy. But I think it's good to hear what the government, the kinds of things the government thinks we're going to be doing. Some best practices um, that we're going to be looking at as an organization going forward. Um, our informatics group is currently, our informatics doctors are currently interested in, in ways to help better facilitate nurses and um, front end staff for knowing where is the quick kind of reference point I can look in the patient's chart to find who these people are that it's okay to talk to. So they're on the, the task for that. And we've got some other initiatives that we're going to be working on, but um, it's really helpful to get the point of view from, from you all um, about what works and what doesn't work. So when we get to that, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that as we start to develop, you know, once cadence comes into play, that's really when we're hoping to, to launch this. So the first thing we talk about a lot in these meetings is building this stuff into the workflow. So ask the question at registration. Ask the question when the new patient packet goes out. Who is it okay for me to talk to about your appointments, about your medications, um, about your procedures you might have? Um, I think it's important that that information be specific to the department and the encounter in some, in some circumstances because Something I talk about with the informatics team is I'm a little leery of a thing on the patient's chart that applies to all the departments here that says okay to talk to spouse. Because it might be okay in the ortho clinic to talk about you know, more detailed information, but maybe not in PMONC or in OBGYN. There might be, so if you're seeing okay to talk to, it really is gonna be depending on what that script is we're having with the patient, making sure we're telling them this is the information that we're, the whole organization's gonna not just my specific clinic. Um, what are the, the numbers we can call? Can we leave a message on your voice on your cell phone? Can we leave a detailed message on your cell phone? Is it just your cell phone? Are you the only one who has you know? These kind of questions are helpful for us to get the information to the patient. And then the, the last bullet, what we were just talking about, documenting the answer in an easy to find area in the electronic health record. Um, Currently, we have a form called, called a designation of personal representative form that um, allows a patient to identify someone uh, to assist them in exercising their health information rights. So if we also build this into the workflow, someone can say, yes, my husband is my personal representative, and you can talk to him about appointments, verbal communications. Uh, they can get my medical record if they want. They can come and request it. Um, they're going to be helping me with my care. So this is a, I don't think this is the, always the best solution, but it's a good solution that we have these things on file. We build them into our workflow. Um, we explain to them that if they want to limit it to a certain department, they tell us so we can put it on the form. Then it gets scanned into the record under scan docs. And it lives there. And some of your patients might actually have one of these on file right now. This is a sure proof way that that's the person you can talk to unless they limited it in some way. These are available on the intranet and on the internet if you'd like to do some in your clinic. Um, we talked about verifying identities. So this is important. This is an important step. It's a policy <laughs> that I'm in Hitchcock. 
that we verify the identity of the, of the person who's asking for information before we disclose it. Um, and it's, it's kind of a quick little one, two, three. So you have to figure out what the relationship with the patient is. Um, just ask them that. I'm the mother, I'm the daughter-in-law, whatever it may be. How are you involved in the patient's care? Are you good for care? Um, you know, I'm, oh, I'm just calling to check in on them. Okay, well, I'm going to refer you to uh, the patient's husband then, who you've already, you know, you've already established as uh, involved in the care. Um, oh, I'm picking her up for, from her appointment. Oh, okay, she'll be done in 30 minutes. You know, there's a, there's a different kind of uh, tone to how you're involved. Um, ask for the patient's date of birth, address, phone number. So if I'm calling to get information about my mother-in-law, they're going to ask me, what's her date of birth, what's her phone number, what's her address? Give me some identifiers that just, I'm doing my due diligence to know that you know who this person is, and um, okay, we can, you know, we can make this happen. My mother-in-law's, um, this actually did just happen to me because my mother-in-law broke her wrist, so I called the emergency room, and they asked me who I was, asked me my relationship to her, they put me on hold for a little bit, because I think they ran over to her room and asked her, daughter-in-law's on the phone, can we, actually I know they did, daughter-in-law's on the phone, can we transfer her over her to you? And she said yes, and that was one of those scenarios where the patient is present, and we got agreement to, to disclose. And then we're going to disclose only information that's directly relevant to involvement of care. So we talked about the scenario where the wife calls to pay a bill for treatment on January 1. We're going to limit our disclosure of the patient's PHI to that the cost incurred in that specific encounter. We're not going to go back and discuss past medical history. We're not going to go back and talk about other outstanding balances that are due. Um, and we just talked about this too. Refer questions, callers to identified family members. So if you get the random neighbor who's called, or you get, you know, the aunt, or you just don't know how they're involved in the care, you don't know if it's right to disclose it. Um, nobody's saying that we have to, and we can always just refer them to the the person who has been identified as the family member. So the husband, wife, daughter, daughter-in-law, etc. Um, and it's also helpful to get that information from the patient. Say and and they're the person who's with them. You know, if somebody calls and I refer them to you, and I give them your cell phone number. Can I? You know, how do you want to make this happen? How do we make it happen? In some um, areas of the hospital, we use a family ID. Um, are you guys familiar with that? In I think it's in same day. Uh, I see it. Uses it. The ICN uses it. Um, ICU does too. The ICU does? Mm -hmm. Excellent. Great, great. So critical care units, same-day surgery, are using a patient identifier um, that they give to the family. Uh, so if they give it to the patient, and the patient can give it to the family members that they want involved in their care. So when the person calls up, um, wants to know the status, wants to know how they're doing, any other information, they say, can you give me the, the family uh, ID number? They give it to them, and you know that's enough verification that they can they can start talking and, and sharing information that's relevant to that um, their involvement. So I think there's uh, there are opportunities to expand this type of um, tool um, that we should consider uh, doing. And that's all I have to present today. Do you guys have any specific questions? I'd be happy to to answer them about situations that that pop up for you guys or anything that wasn't clear? Okay, excellent.
thank you all so much um, for, for being here and listening. And good luck. Please call us if you have any questions. We're, we're good at it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.